Well, thank you for coming this evening. Um, this evening's speaker, um, Rod McDonald, is the FR Scott Professor of Constitutional Public Law and the former Dean of the Law Faculty at McGill University in Montreal. Um, I won't try to list all Rod's various achievements and honours, but I'll just give you a few. Um, Rod was the founding president of the Law Commission of Canada. He served as director of the Law Society Programme at the Canadian Institute of Advanced Research. And in 2008, he was elected the president of the Royal Society of Canada. In 2007, not only did that society award him the Sir William Dale Dawson Prize for the social sciences, but he was also awarded the Killam Prize, which is Canada's most distinguished annual award for outstanding career achievements in research. Among his many other distinctions, he holds an honorary LLD from the University of Montreal, an Order of Merit from the University of Ottawa. He's been a visiting professor at a range of universities um, in Canada, Australia, and France. And he's currently a visiting professor here in the Law Department at the LSE. We're delighted to have him, of course. Uh, and we're delighted that he's agreed to give this evening's public lecture. And his title is, Does Law Have a Place in the Modern University? Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Neil. Um, that's uh, it's a bit of a, uh, an embarrassing uh, introduction, uh, but it's, it's not the worst uh, uh, embarrassment I've ever had. That occurred about 30 years ago when I was dean of the faculty and the head of the law alumni uh, introduced me to an alumni gathering, uh, saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce my uh, old friend, uh, Professor McDonald. I've known Professor McDonald a long time. I've known him as a child, as an adolescent, uh, as an adult unfortunately too often on the same day. <laughs> um, it's a special pleasure for me to be presenting this lecture tonight uh, at LSE. My affinity with this uh, noble institution extends three generations. Um, let me commence with the generation of professors who are my teachers and mentors. Two great scholars from LSE bulk large in my own education. Many of you will, will find resonances in my remarks about the university tonight with the thought of Michael Oakeshott, uh, whose ideas about teaching and learning are today an inspiration for me in my own graduate supervision. Um, but while we share a vision of what the university should aspire to be, we actually have quite different political views. Uh, particularly in my teaching of administrative law at McGill, uh, I'm much more optimistic about the capacity of government uh, to establish institutions and processes enabling humans, humans to achieve a just society. And in this optimism, my perspective is shaped by another distinguished professor at LSE, coincidentally a former lecturer at McGill and uh, Oakeshott's immediate predecessor, I refer of course to Harold Lasky. Um, I knew neither, but I'm pleased to acknowledge the intellectual heritage they have passed on to me. LSE is also the home of two very good friends and colleagues who are my contemporaries. The head of the law department, uh, Martin Lachlan, with whom I shared uh, cameo appearances at academic conferences since 1977, 
uh, must surely count among the finest Anglo-American administrative and public law scholars of the past half century. Uh, Martin's deep understanding of the political economy of the real administrative law lived every day in agencies, boards, commissions, is matched by his incisive legal mind. Uh, this, I can assure you, uh, is a lethal combination. Let me also acknowledge Professor Michael Bridge, who was an inspirational teacher, scholar, and colleague with me at McGill during the 1980s, and who taught me much about how to see, as the expression goes, the universe in a raindrop. Michael is recognized around the world for his work in sales law and stands out as the leading voice for secured transactions reform that addresses the complexities of modern financial institutions while remaining faithful to the legacy of the common law. And finally, thirdly, I'm thrilled to note that the staff cohort at LSE comprises two of the most wonderful students I've had the privilege of teaching. Kristen Rundle, who completed an outstanding LLM thesis in administrative law under my supervision, is now about to publish the fruits of her doctoral dissertation, a project I flatter myself to think that may have first emerged during her time at McGill. And then there's Gregoire Weber, who patiently suffered through my undergraduate courses in public law only a few years ago. Gregoire, I hasten to add, is an epitome of the best Canadian public law scholars of his generation. You will grant me, I'm sure, that one of the extraordinary recompenses of a career in law teaching is the pleasure of charting the achievements of one's students as their scholarly trajectory surpasses one's own. Now, I mentioned these intellectual mentors, long-standing colleagues, and recent students to make a central point about the contemporary university at its best, and dare I say, about LSE as an instantiation of that aspiration. The university is at once a place of the past, the present, the future. It is a site for conversation and contestation about intellectual excellence, about multiple dimensions of diversity, be this disciplinary, sociodemographic, political, and about engagement with the community, from the local to the global. In a word, this conception, in this conception, the university is a paradox of time and place. It exists now, but it also exists out of time. It exists right here, but it also exists nowhere and everywhere. This is the backstory to my remarks, and they're the premises underlying the themes I'd like to develop this evening. I shall begin by recasting my advertised title, which is posed as a question. Does law have a place in the modern university? I want to reframe that question in the form of an assertive thesis, which is stated in my subtitle. Every great university needs a legal studies program. I argue that a legal studies program should be a core component of every great university. Now let me be clear about the scope of this claim. I speak tonight of a legal studies program, of an endeavor, not a particular arrangement of a tuition or a label. The program may be a standard undergraduate BA program, it might be a joint majors program, it might be an interdisciplinary law and society program, and it may even be, as in North America, a freestanding second degree 
law program. The nomenclature and the institutional form are less salient than the inquiry undertaken. Indeed, let me emphasize that it's the questions pursued in legal study, be these substantive, procedural, institutional, or professional, that matter. These types of questions are inescapable in modern society, and I will come back to them in my final section. For the moment, I shall merely foreshadow the inquiry with specific examples drawn from the everyday subjects of legal reflection. A first point about legal studies is that students of the law must confront, in the particular, how human beings organize knowledge. Here's an example. Recently, there's been much debate about same-sex marriage. This debate immediately engages a policy question. Why do we think of marriage as a two-party heterosexual union? Close analysis of the psychology of conjugality and the socioeconomics of high affect human interaction leads us quickly to see that many of the policies supporting state recognition of same-sex marriage apply equally to all close personal adult relationships, whether conjugal or not. If we ask this type of question, we see that inquiry goes well beyond same-sex relationships, and we would also see that it includes long-standing relationships between siblings who have made a life together, or a similar relationship between an adult child and a parent, or all analogous relationships of dependence or interdependence. Second, law students are required to reflect on the forms and the limits of the institutions through which everyday human interaction is facilitated or disciplined. This often leads to a perception or a preoccupation, excuse me, with the pathologies of human interaction. Why do we presume that courts and adjudication must be the backstop for any consensual process aimed at resolving conflict? Do we really need specific rules about when a party is in breach of a contractual undertaking as a precondition to turning human failing into a specific litigious right? What conception of social institution drives our desire to use law to create, to create disputes by naming them? Here's a third example. Students of law are routinely compelled to consider questions of justice. Inquiry might start with the question, why the damages awarded for a given personal injury caused by a person's negligence? For example, a pedestrian struck by a cyclist should be the same regardless of the relative economic endowments of the parties. Why should the amount payable by an indigent cyclist who collides with a millionaire bond trader be the same as the amount the millionaire bond trader cyclist would be required to pay an indigent pedestrian? Now, I'm assuming, of course, uh, that the occasional millionaire bond trader does ride a bicycle in London, and that, that, that might be an incorrect assumption. Devoting academic resources and encouraging direct scholarly engagement with these questions is a wise investment for a university, not just because of their importance to society. Posing them explicitly and puzzling through their implications offers an example of the fundamental commitment of the university to questions which are intrinsically self-reflexive. 
It's difficult to address them in the abstract without at the very same time seeing their implication for one's own life. And as will be apparent as I proceed, I believe that attention to these questions has the additional advantage of better enabling the university to defend itself against its enemies, both external and internal. I, I make my case in four parts. I commence by briefly identifying some of the principal threats to the university. I then turn to a consideration of the aspirational university, its ambitions and purposes. In the third section, I explore the basic themes in university life as a quest for virtue. And in my final section, I address the special contribution that a legal studies program can make to sustaining this view of the university. Principal threats. There is widespread agreement, at least within the scholarly communities in which I circulate, that the modern university is under assault. The usual suspects and the usual critiques are familiar. One, governments addicted to determining expenditures by measurable outputs who insist on shaping the definition of productivity in a university. Two, business enterprises that claim that graduates know nothing, <coughs> nothing at all, nothing of importance, and they have no marketable skills. Three, trade unions that see universities simply as elite institutions serving an exclusionary class system. Four, religious and cultural minorities, whether of long residence or recent arrival, for whom equal access to education, higher education, is a myth. Five, publishers of populist newspapers seeking to increase circulation with an easy target to bash, who delight especially in anti-intellectualism. Now much goes unsaid or unacknowledged in this multi-pronged attack. In <coughs> fact, each prong is actually a proxy for a different claim. Behind the value for money argument, often lie governments suspicious of sources of information and an analysis that they can't control. Behind the business critique is a desire to externalize the cost of training and retraining employees to be efficient cogs in the knowledge economy. Behind the concern expressed by organized labor are a frustration about class mobility and a disquiet about a social system that conceives knowledge as too precious to waste on mere workers. And behind preoccupations about social exclusion may be found concerns relating to the quality of primary and secondary public education. Finally, behind the journalistic assault on universities lies Rupert Murdoch and I shall say no more about that. Some of these critiques and unspoken claims speak the truth. Others don't. All need to be addressed, but few are. In general, the criticisms should not be feared. To the extent they have popular resonance, they at least show that the public considers university important enough to be worthy of attention. And further, they can be addressed but they can only be properly attended to if the will to do so is present. And that, I fear, is at the root of our current problem. I believe that the threat to universities that has the most potential for damage does not lie in criticisms voiced by those outside its doors. The threat is internal. It's a disease. It's capable of afflicting all without regard to status, position, or politics. 
at different times and in different places, students, faculty, support staff, academic administrators, and boards of regents have caught this virus. And like all viruses, it propagates itself best when certain conditions are present. The virus must be virulent, even better if unrecognized and unnamed. The host under attack must be weak. The carriers of the virus must be part of a closely packed, not diffused population. And there must be neither an available vaccination nor an easy or cheap post-infection treatment. These propitious conditions for viral propagation are present today in the university. What, you may ask, is the virus that dares not speak its name? It is complacency. A delusional self-satisfaction among administrators, professors, and students. Surprisingly for an institution in which unbridled inquiry is meant to flourish, many of us are in total denial about the seriousness of these critiques. We have no adequate response to them because we're too busy or simply disinclined to ask, what is a university? And also because we too often disdain to respond helpfully to a concerned public that genuinely seeks to know an answer. Now I acknowledge that many, if not all units of the university, have the capacity to take up and several are now actively engaged in serious inquiry into the pertinence of these critiques. But I want to make the case that a well-conceived legal studies program can play a crucial role and has a central responsibility for inoculating the university against the virus of complacency. In order to do so, I need first to explore in some detail the question that I've suggested we ignore. What is a university? Often the question, what is a university, is answered by a quest to discern its purposes. The assumption is that universities have to be good for something. I say the assumption is misguided, and not just because the purposes usually identified are too limited. No doubt they are. We know that the code words good for something really mean good for getting a job. However, it would be just as wrong to say that universities are simply good for advancing knowledge. Of course, I believe that a university is a place where people do acquire habits of mind and habits of action that will be highly valued in the employment setting. I have in mind here the list of attributes upon which we are called to comment regularly as professors and teachers uh, in letters of reference. Creativity, mental agility, time management, the ability to express oneself clearly and cogently, industry, initiative, perseverance, the desire to learn in interaction with others, and so on. But these same habits will also be highly valued in any setting involving other people, in voluntary organizations, politics, in the neighborhood, and even in families. Notice the point. The consequences of a good university education may be that a graduate is more marketable. But enhanced marketability is not the purpose of the university. Likewise, I believe that the university uh, is a place where knowledge is gained and shared, where scientific discoveries are made, and artistic works are generated. But again, this is not the purpose of the university, although it is certainly a happy consequence of the activity that is central to university life. 
a university is not a factory. It's not organized and managed to produce a product, like, for example, knowledge, discoveries, skilled labor. A university is not a place where old knowledge is deposited by members of the academic staff into the new and empty vessels that are the students. And new knowledge is created by them only because it's useful. Teaching and learning have multiple vectors. No head is ever empty. No one's role is to passively wait at the filling station for a tank full of knowledge. None of us have such complete knowledge and wisdom that we have everything to teach and nothing to learn from students, administrators, secretaries, janitors. Some years ago, I attended the ceremony at which a former student was sworn in as an appeal court judge. The newly minted judge was kind enough to say that the best course she ever took at university was my undergraduate administrative process course. Before I could swell up with pride about being singled out for my great knowledge and expertise, she explained why in a manner that severely mitigated that hubris. In summary, she said this, in this course, we were all teachers and we were all learners. Professor McDonald acknowledged the whole class as having contributed to ideas in one of his articles. But this understates the point, she said. The best lesson I ever received about distributive justice and institutional design came from Mrs. X, a mother of three, who made a class presentation on family as a regulatory agency. Surprisingly, she continued, I've never practiced administrative law. But every field I did practice, family law, real estate, successions, I came to see as a field of administrative law. She concluded, I don't think I learned any particular thing during my law school career. In retrospect, what I really took away from my legal education was a deeper understanding of myself. Now, I admit that these comments were per, uh, perhaps a bit over the top, but I believe the sentiment was genuine. She saw that what mattered was not something she learned or some skill she acquired that was intended to enable her to do something in particular. Like Oakshot, I believe that a university is not an enterprise association. A university is a richly textured assemblage of environments, opportunities, inquiries, and people that encourages all its members to seek excellence without stipulating the specific content of that excellence. Every activity, teaching, learning, research, is an occasion for nurturing this ambition. The excellence that characterizes a great university is not a rarefied intellectual excellence or theoretical wisdom, in the language of Aristotle, Sophia. It is also practical wisdom, again in Aristotle's language, phrenesis. However much governments, educational administrators, corporate managers believe that objective criteria may be stipulated and measurement techniques perfected, excellence in the university cannot be measured. Neither points on a grid nor inventories of prizes awards, funding monies received, are determinant of the greatness of a university. Excellence in the university is above all moral excellence, and again borrowing Aristotle's language, we might say this moral excellence is arete or virtue, which 
takes me to my third point, the quest for virtue. I've already suggested that the university is not a purpose-driven monolithic institution. Plurality and diversity characterize its structure and its activities. This said, many people conclude that there are particular types of inquiry, particular disciplines, perhaps even particular jobs in the university that are conducive to the pursuit of virtue. This is wrong-headed. Every unit, every program, and every person in a university has a role to play. Virtue does not belong only to the humanities, still less so only to philosophy. Of course, virtuosity, skill, or technique, may take different forms. There's no template for virtuosity that can be played or uh, used uh, indiscriminately to the humanities, the sciences, medicine, engineering, or law. The character of inquiry that conduces to virtue has no disciplinary limits. In the university, there are a number of habits of the heart, habits of the mind, that we attribute to those whose attitudes and actions might be characterized as virtuous. Some speak to how we conceive knowledge. Virtue in our search for understanding implies a reverence for the accumulated wisdom of the past, tempered with an acknowledgement of its contingency. Virtue calls forth a commitment to the protocols of free inquiry, disciplined by methodological rigor and respect for evidence. It demands respect for new knowledge and new frameworks and humility in the face of the challenges such knowledge and frameworks pose to orthodoxy. But virtue demands more. Virtue means seeking a performance of one's commitments that speaks of who one is. Acting virtuously does not simply mean doing a job in order to make a living. Acting virtuously is a way of being alive. What do I mean by that? The psychologist Barry Schwartz captures the idea this way. Virtue demands moral will, the desire to act with integrity and justly towards everyone. Virtue also demands moral skill, the ability to reason about how to act appropriately in the life situations we confront every day. Here's a personal story that parallels uh, an example given by Schwartz. I began my career at a university where the academic staff became unionized shortly after I was hired. Our first collective agreement spelled out at great length academic duties, drawing distinctions between the tasks that could be assigned to teachers who were on contract, tenure-track teachers, tenured teachers, and holders of chairs. Every task was described in measurable physicalist terms. Be present at one's office during the work week. Teach three 45-hour courses each academic year. Prepare teaching manuals. Set and correct examinations. Write and publish X number of articles per year. Serve on no more than one university and two faculty committees, and so on. A list of 35 academic tasks. Now, I understood and supported the impetus to immunization, but the outcome of the bargaining process left me cold. Was this what I understood my vocation to be a, of a university professor teacher to be? 
to perform an inventory of tasks in which a human being was never mentioned. Not one of the tasks in that inventory mentioned human being. But as I considered my conundrum, I came to realize that no list of tasks could ever capture what it means to commit oneself to a virtuous performance of one's calling as an academic. At age 27, I had the desire to excel, and I may even have had both theoretical knowledge and pedagogical skill, but I had neither experience nor maturity to fully exploit these. I lacked practical wisdom, phrenesis, through which these other talents could be marshaled in the pursuit of virtue. No collective agreement could ever spell this out because it is not possible to reduce to job rules. It is acquired as habits of the mind and habits of the heart are acquired in practice and through apprenticeship. Let me trace out the specific implications of this conception by reference to five hypotheses about how to understand and attend to virtue in the university. It's realized in some way in every university, realized in some larger extent in the great universities. First, a university is a system of offices, roles, processes, and commitments. All are important not for themselves, but for the liberation of human energy and capacity they make possible. A university is a site of constantly circulating inputs and outputs, people interacting with people exploring ideas and experiences. Second, the university is a social institution with porous structures and porous processes. These structures and processes are important for their capacity to absorb experiences and ideas. The university enables best when it does not suffer from operational closure. Experiences and ideas from unusual places are as powerful as those flowing from structures specifically designed to generating ideas. Third, the university is at once nowhere, everywhere, and right here. It exists both right now and eternally. To imagine that the university must be only responsive to a particular configuration of society as it exists in London today is to imagine that the university exists only in London today. Ideas may come and go, their popularity wax and wane, but they remain as the legacy of the past that shapes the inheritance of the future. Four, the university is anti-instrumental. The achievements of its members should be understood for the value and the meaning of the doing itself. When recognition is instrumentalized within an institution, the quest for recognition comes to trump the quest for virtue. A university or an academic staff without virtue is preoccupied with tabulating how it has influenced others. And these are what higher education scales measure. A virtuous university comprises an academic staff that acknowledges the influence that others have had upon it. The primary challenge for the university today is how it can create the conditions of excellence that inspire staff students, faculty, to seek these cardinal virtues. This means learning how to celebrate 
those who are uncelebrated, of those who have not sought recognition and to recall what they've stood for as reflected and remembered in the quest to live virtuously of those who live on when they're gone. And that brings me to virtue in the study of law. You've been patient with me as I've set the stage for a defense of my central thesis. Every great university needs a legal studies program. I actually have little to add to what's gone before. Most of my defense of legal studies rests on convictions about the nature and ambitions of the contemporary university. If I failed in persuading you that this vision for the university has merit, my arguments about the special role and responsibilities of legal studies programs will be equally unconvincing. But suppose I'm right. Suppose I'm right about the university as an example of Oakshot's conception of a civil association, a community of learners in quest of virtuous lives. Why do I believe that a well-conceived legal studies program is a privileged site for pursuing this ambition? What about legal study will give the university the strength to repel unfounded criticisms and the courage to confront and respond confidently to critiques that do have merit? I make four claims. These touch in order the primary objects of legal study, the methodology of legal inquiry, the types of knowledge and insight that inhere in legal, in legal inquiry, and the moral demands that law imposes on its students whatever their age, whatever their experience. In developing these hypotheses, I come full circle to my introduction, because if my basic conception of the university finds particular residence, resonance in Oakshot's thought, my understanding of legal studies follows paths of inquiry traced by Harold Lasky. Here's my first claim. Studying law is a powerful inquiry into interpersonal and social relationships into the complexities of people in interaction with each other. Not just casual encounters, although many legal relationships are of this type. Not just hierarchical impositions of power, although some legal relations are like this. Laws concerned with institutions and processes through which human beings fashion just relationships. The study of law demands understanding of human beings as proposive and of human institutions as means ends complexes. The student of law learns to be a wise counselor on questions of institutional design, not a social engineer seeking to dictate human conduct, but an architect of agency promoting facilitative social structures that are on offer to citizens and governments. Second, legal study is necessarily grounded. It proceeds from the particular to the general. Legal learning is grounded in the practice of understanding and solving specific problems that arise in everyday life. Abstract theoretical knowledge is a canvas on which students of law learn to paint particular proposals for addressing novel situations beyond the contemplation of general rules. Laws concerned with the conditions under which human freedom can be pursued within a series of offices and roles. The law student acquires the discipline to ask not what does the law permit me to do, but rather to reflect on answering the question, what 
should I do, all things considered. Third, legal study involves acquiring a range of capacities for mediating the experiences of the quotidian, the everyday, with the ideals of the transcendent. Law graduates are dispersed into all sectors of society, both domestically and internationally. Many do not practice the profession, but the goal of a well-conceived legal studies program is that all graduates will take with them the everyday lessons of law and the lessons of everyday law. They do so with a clear understanding of what it means to be committed to the virtuous deployment of their knowledge. Knowledge of the law enacted by parliaments, applied by courts, is only a small part of that endeavor. A law student learns to traverse the terrain of law that's promulgated by international organizations, by the local chapter of the Red Cross Society. A law student also learns to understand the internal law of multinational corporations, like Reebok, for example, the informal law of a neighborhood, and the legal melee of the university itself. Every setting demands attention to issues of legitimacy, due process, substantive justice. How one engages with everyday law and everyday sites is the litmus test of legal virtue. Fourth, studying law offers members of a community a powerful lens through which they may view and judge themselves and their community. Law is not just a thing. It's also more than a practice. Law is a human accomplishment. Over time, various dimensions of formal or official law and informal law together come to express a society's values, its convictions, as well as its pathologies and its prejudices. Students of law learn to act virtuously within the confines of legal practice. They learn to frame arguments that bring scrutiny to accepted norms, accepted processes, accepted outcomes. And students of law learn to stand outside the law. True engagement with law is inescapably self-reflexive and self-critical. These are four dimensions of legal study that lend themselves to the task of inoculating the university against the virus of complacency. A focus on institutions and processes within the university as means and complexes, the need for continual questioning, a focus on moral justification for action and not just legal authority, a concern for holding the everyday, the implicit, the customary, up to the scrutiny of the transcendent, and the reverse, and a willingness to be self-critical with the courage to confront the critiques of others. I should now like to conclude. Every field of inquiry in the contemporary university should be devoted to the pursuit of virtue, of moral excellence. Every field of inquiry. As such, every unit can be a site of the self-critique that inheres in a great university. Regrettably, it is now rarely the case that every unit carries this burden. The leaders of many great institutions have surrendered to the whims of political accountability and the instrumental logic of business demand for so-called skilled labor. Often they have done so smugly and in self-delusion believing they remain faithful to the foundational aspirations of the university. 
too many of the composite units of our universities have quietly acquiesced, as have their academics and students. Especially troubling to me, so have some legal studies departments. But many have not. Universities are facing increasing pressure to be relevant for students entering the job market. Many see the idea of a liberal arts education as doomed to disappear. Even law faculties and law departments are under increasing pressure to become mere antechambers to the legal professions. Only today, I read uh, in the Times Higher Education Supplement uh, that uh, Pearson is bidding to acquire the College of Law. One more step to the instrumentalization of legal studies. But the inquiries and aspirations of legal study are incompatible with passive compliance. No respectable legal studies program can avoid the self-critique inherent in genuine engagement with the law. Legal studies departments can be and they have the responsibility to be sites of reflection on the purposes of the university as an institution, as a collection of roles, and as a community. Faculty and students of legal studies department can also take the lead in translating such reflections into specific institutional practices and policies. In holding fast, legal studies programs can be the antivirus with which the university can be vaccinated before the malign virus fatally weakens it. And I might add, as a personal coda to these reflections, uh, that from Lasky to Oakshot, through Lachlaner Bridge to Rundle and Weber, I can see in LSE a vindication of my claim that every great university needs a great legal studies program. Thank you very much. should have said at the beginning that Rod has very kindly agreed to take questions. Um, there are some microphones around and I'm sure some people will want to ask questions, so don't be shy. Um, uh, anybody who wants to, just put your hand up and I'll hit you out. We have one bidder already. Probably the most complicated person you to get to. Martin Laughlin here. Thank you very much indeed, Rod, for that uh, kind acknowledgement of reminding me how old I actually am. Uh, Are you wise? Or have you reached that stage in life when you realize you're getting older faster than you're getting wiser? I had more wisdom in my youth, I suspect. Uh, I want to challenge some of the assumptions you're making about this presentation because first you used this weasel phrase legal studies not law departments not law schools but legal studies in universities and the two great mentors who you take as your model Michael Oakeshott Harold Lasky couldn't fault these as two models but neither of them both were very interested in the phenomenon of law, but neither of them were lawyers. Neither of them had a professional training in law, neither of them taught in a law 
department, neither of them would, well, Lasky for a small part of his existence, but neither of them would immediately associate themselves as in pursuit of legal studies. So what you're telling me is, that, well, and also I know, knowing enough about your own approach to law, a pluralistic approach to law, you're saying law is normative ordering. And we can see that an anthropology department at the LSE might want to have an anthropologist of law, and a sociology department might want to have a sociologist of law, and the government department might have somebody who deals with comparative constitutionalism, and if it really is about virtue, then the philosopher will start, the philosophy department will claim. So we could easily have many characters at an institution like the LSE pursuing individually in their different departments the study of law, but no law department. What's the function of a law department? And that's the question you didn't answer. And what you seem to be suggesting to me is that a university might be better placed pursuing legal studies without actually having a law department because, and this is the crunch, the pressure we have, the future, the future in the elite world at least, is modeled on the US, um, the, the big American law schools. The big factories that charge very high fees, that pay their professors absurd amounts of money for doing this, for carrying out this virtuous undertaking, and who are corrupting the whole of the enterprise of the universe. Enterprise is probably not the best way. The, the whole uh, activity of, uni of university study, if that's how we conceive it. And yet this is the future for most of us who are involved in the discipline of law. I, I think you asked three questions. I wasn't aware of asking one. So, so the first question is, why did I say a legal studies program instead of any particular institution in which it is uh, conceived? It's, it's, it's for precisely the reasons that you, that you articulated that there are many people in the university, Oshon, Lasky, in other departments, who, whether they know it or not, are doing legal inquiry. And I've tried to trace out what the elements of doing legal inquiry would be. So, so this, that led to your second question, which I take it is, it, is there a specific value added to having a designated unit within a university called law department, faculty of law? And my argument, again, uh, is yes, there is. And that was, I guess I had left that more understated than I uh, thought that I had. Because one, one of the things that happens is the pressure on those free agents outside an institutional home to conform to the norms that are dominant in the particular location where they are and to give up or renounce 
the type of inquiry which is inherent in legal inquiry is very strong. I see it at McGill all the time. We have people who are hired to teach legal anthropology. If they are not cross-appointed to the faculty of law, they soon become anthropologists and nothing but. And their mind is organized around that discipline. Same for legal sociologists. Those who teach philosophy of law, well, I mean, they, they come in damned to start with and cross-appointed to law or otherwise there's no salvation. Law and economics is the same problem. Right? Once the, the, the free standards get drawn away from the central concerns of a, of a law department, without a law department to provide anchorage for all of those virtuous people around the university, their contribution will quickly erode. So that, yes, I believe, and, and you've known me long enough, I believe that the design of institutions is fundamental uh, to the accomplishment of, of, of these types of goals. So my claim is that the law department, we call it, uh, as a home for legal studies, as a core, atomic core, uh, is essential to the capacity of those other, other places of the university pursuing these inquiries uh, to, to maintain anchorage. The third question is, am, am, I, am I dreaming in technicolor? Because what we find is the more that we identify a, pro, a, a program as a site, meaning faculty of law, the more the profession takes it over. And all I can say is, you're absolutely right. And this is what Pearson is doing. Uh, and and, and, and we'll soon, it will soon be, there will be a Pearson Department of Law in some university very quickly and we'll know exactly what, it, what it's going to do. This is the pressure of, of the university. It's a bit dated, it's a bit 1960s. When I was dean, I used to have recruitment processes, I used to ask candidates, the university shuts down the law faculty for whatever reason and offers you two years to qualify to practice law in the jurisdiction of your choice or uh, two years to retool to teach in another department of the university. What do you pick? And anybody who said, I, I, I go to practice law, uh, got hired by some other university. Because fundamentally, the law faculty will lose its soul if its members do not conceive themselves above all else as university teachers academics. And the resistance can only come from that group because there's no there's no doubt that students desperately want to instrumentalize, uh, I shouldn't say all students, many students desperately want to instrumentalize their education. They desperately want to believe that the data they get out of a textbook is the only thing that matters completely abstracted from the capacity to employ that data wisely or, or virtuously. So, yes, the pressure is there. Yes, we face it at McGill. Yes, all institutions in, in North America face it. But what's the option? Give up? Be smug and say, 
well, we're here to serve the market? I don't think so. And my argument was that we ought not. So that's my response to your third question, for what it's worth. Who's next? Can I follow up on, on Martin's third question? Um, so part of the storyline is, in a sense, the virtue it can't be taught in a way that a textbook is taught. Right? It's uh, acquired by a form of apprenticeship. That's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that, in a sense, we're losing that we're losing the mentors to teach the incoming staff that apprenticeship. So how do we reinvigorate it if part of the problem is there's not enough of us left, us who self-identify, say, as the virtuous ones, um, to have enough pressure on the unvirtuous ones, the vice-written ones, to make them virtuous without teaching it, because it's not the sort of thing that is taught in quite the same way as other things can be taught. This, th I think this is generational. Uh, uh, those who are better demographers than I could give you a more complete answer. But if I, if I look at the academy, the teaching cohort in, uh, in uh, Canadian law faculties, it went from a sum total of 150 members of staff of all Canadian law faculties in the mid 60s to 800 in 1980. Figure out the demographics, you know how old they are, and you know what they're doing now, right? There was a, a huge whack of recruitment of people born between about 1936 and 1945 that dominated legal education from 1970 to 2005. They're all retiring now. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm 63, and I'm the third oldest person on our faculty. Ten years ago, I was the 15th oldest. They're gone. So what you sense, the lack of mentors, the lack of older people with experience, I think is conjunctural. I, I don't think we're going to enter a period where Nobody with any brain stays in law teaching. They use it as a springboard to something else. But a burden, a tremendous burden, will be cast now on people in their 40s to begin to step into that role that was previously occupied by people in their 50s and, and early 60s to accelerate the process of uh, gaining wisdom. But, I, but I, I'm, I'm not pessimistic. It's been done before. It'll be done again. It was. It was done. It was done at the University of Toronto. Statistics I, I happen to know, like McGill, had five full-time members of academic staff in 1965. In 1975, both institutions had 25. So in 10 years, they quintupled the size. Who mentored them? They were all young. They learned. The students may have suffered greatly, but they learned. 
Gregoire Virtuous Weber from No <laughs> <laughs> It's just a brief continuation of the question launched by Martin. And the point that occurred to me as you reiterated legal studies program, that you might have been making a statement <clears throat> about how lawyers in a law school, law department or wherever, interact with other members of the university. You've made a passing reference to how departments capture the citizens and close them off from the outside world by reference to sociology and anthropology. But my question to you, I guess, is quite a simple one. Do you think law schools, law departments, etc., pull their weight within universities? Or do you think they're too isolationist, isolationist too much inward-looking? I'm not now talking about whether they meet the criteria for teaching students, recruiting students, publishing good research, but do they pull their weight within the university? No. Do you want more? Where, where they don't, but where they don't, they don't pull their weight. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm primarily talking about teachers uh, in the university because the programs typically tend to be porous. Students from other uh, disciplines and departments can enroll in law courses. Law students can enroll out of department things like. What about professors? Professors tend to be very insular, and they tend to be insular not only in their teaching, but also their research and their service to the university. The, 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 getting, getting teachers in a, in a law department to participate in the governance of the university is, is a real burden. And uh, I, yes, so, so the, the answer to the question is no. We are not sufficiently as, generally, as, as law departments and academics in law departments, concerned enough with our interactions with colleagues and other disciplines and departments. Thank you very much, Rod. Uh, I don't think my question is going to be virtuous uh, or, or presumptuous, for that matter. Uh, Universities are both internally and externally subject to rules that derive from allocative justice. How do you see the tension uh, between virtue and justice being resolved? central paradox of the modern university is that it is a complex institution that likes to imagine itself as comp comprised of uh, discrete manageable uh, bits. The discrete manageable bits are thought to be sufficient on their own to make capacities of uh, resource allocation, uh, sharing of the, of the burdens and the benefits of collegiality uh, without uh, 
explicit institutional forms and uh, explicit rules. The university, on the other hand, cannot function without a set of decision-making institutions uh, and, 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 and procedures uh, for, for invoking uh, allocations, especially interdepartmental uh, allocations. I did not want to make the claim, I didn't want to be taken as making a claim that there is something called virtue, which is so phenomenal that if everybody bows down to the god of virtue, we neither need institutions, rules, processes, <coughs> procedures. Of course not. Of course not. But the 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 way in which the two are, are mediated is you have to you, you have to be self-critical about the institutions and the rules and the processes that you have. It is not good enough in a university to say this is the structure we inherited, it shall be like this forever. Or this is the procedure for doing this, it shall be like this forever. All of our institutions and processes are revisible through experience and through self-critique. So I don't, I don't see the existence of, of, of this formalization as necessarily making impossible the pursuit of virtue. Rather, I see it as liberating and making, enabling individual staff members and, and uh, smaller units uh, to pursue that quest. I, I don't, I don't, my, my image of law is not law as coercive, my image of law is law as uh, enabling or facilitating. Um, I want to pursue virtue a bit more, but I, I, I think I need a bit more detail on what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, if I'm just thinking about the uh, experience of legal education, of what goes on in the classroom, and of, your, of what the virtuous legal scholar academic is, is trying to do in the room. Um, I think my own experience of legal education was uh, not here, I hasten to add, but it was very much what I would call a sort of rationalization process. So what would happen be there are lots of cases and you had to sort of sort them out so that they somehow were consistent. And, uh, and then even at more abstract levels you had to sort of understand the constitution and how it all fitted together um, but what there wasn't really was a space for much criticism um, there was a bit of criticism certainly some judge had got something wrong somewhere but it, it was kind of it was a kind of a low level kind of critique always that some piece of the jigsaw puzzle didn't quite fit, and we could we could sort that out. Uh, and the, and the great legal scholars were writing these uh, admirable books, in many ways, where they'd sorted it all out for you. So you read their book, and so. On. But my sense is that you have a different vision of, of what should be going on in the classroom than this. Uh, intellectually demanding, uh, quite sophisticated process of rationalization, which is, in my view, light on 
critique, that I had the sense that you thought something more fundamental should be going on. I'd be interested in hearing about that. I, 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 I apologize. I'm a bit hard of hearing, but I think I think I understood your question. If I if I get it wrong, but please come back at me. The I find it puzzling that in um, my own law department at, at McGill, um, we have a significant number of professors who make the claim that they teach the way they are teaching because students need to learn how to do technical legal reasoning, crunch the cases, uh, make sense of offside judicial opinions, understand the, the nuance of, of doctrine. All right? And the assumption is that every course has to do this, and that's the only thing that a legal education should do. If you can't do that by the end of your first year of legal studies, you've been taught by a bunch of bozos. And there's absolutely no reason to make that the centerpiece of, uh, of, of, of the pedagogical endeavor uh, thereafter. It is an important capacity, it is an important technique to get a hold of. Absolutely. Is it fundamental in the sense that that's where it stops? No, because the only question that will ever answer is, do I have the power to do X? Am I entitled to do X? If I go to court, can I predict what somebody is going to do about X? That's not a legal education, as I, I suggested. The ambition of a legal education is to empower students with their instructors to be constantly asking the question in very specific life situations, what should be done? And you can't answer the question, what should be done, if you don't have a critical perspective. And much of our education in second and third, fourth years at McGill University is, is devoted precisely to exposing students to a variety of different ways in which the, the critical question about what should be done can, can be asked. Some of these are macro critiques that lie outside the law. Marxist critiques of law, for example, feminist critiques of law, whatever else. Some of them are actually internal to law. Asking questions like why a particular conceptual conceptualization of private law imagines uh, the Gaius Triptych. Are there other ways of sorting it around? One of the, one of the great beauties, if, if I could just give one specific example, one of the great beauties of that terrible endeavor that are imposed on French lycée students, the, the plan en deux parties. Uh, one of the beauties of that is that once students acquire the capacity to write a plan en deux parties, get the formula down, you're then enabled as, as a professor to say, fine, now take the subject and draft me a plan en trois parties. And now draft me one in five parts. And what students see is that which they think is stable and necessary, even on internal 
critique is infinitely malleable by asking critical questions about what is foregrounded and what is backgrounded. Because however you imagine your plan on departie, the titles and the concepts that you invoke in it can never be transposed into a three-part plan. It just doesn't work. So all of a sudden, the student apprehending the same set of materials sees it entirely fresh, sees it entirely. That is a critical skill that is internal to the organization of knowledge that we have in law. That type of ability, that type of judgment, combined with external critique, is what should dominate the tuition in, in, uh, in the upper years of a, of a faculty of law. We don't, we don't I mean, I, I, I teach a subject where, where it's inescapable. Uh, one of my subjects is secure transactions. How many of my colleagues worry about what you give up if you decide that you were going to take a functional approach to secure transactions? How many of them worry about what you give up if you imagine that it can be turtles all the way down with your legal concepts? This, this, is, this is the root of what we should be doing in, in faculty. Yeah, uh, hi there. Um, uh, I'm currently working on the Legal Education and Training Review for England and Wales. Um, and uh, we were pilloried last week in The Lawyer um, in an article where they complained that there was only one practicing solicitor in the research team, which isn't accurate. But uh, in any case, uh, a lot of the things that you were talking about were the, the criticisms that business makes of the university more generally. Uh, concerns that legal practitioners have been discussing with me when I've been going around talking to partners and, and firms and uh, senior barristers. Uh, the idea that law courses aren't sufficiently practical, aren't focused on the sorts of skills that people are going to need when they enter the profession. I was just wondering if you did have some sort of impression of what would be a good relationship between a law department or, or a legal studies organization within a university and the legal profession, because surely there has to be some nexus. In, in Canada, I'm speaking of that which I know as opposed to that which I don't know, which is the practice in the United Kingdom. In Canada, the problem of the relationship between the professions, Quebec, the notarial professions, was the profession of advocate and, and the law faculties, is that the professions believe that they control the definition of the content. And the question, therefore, reduces itself to what are you people doing in the faculties of law to get your students embarked on our project, on our assumptions. That's the problem. If there were a genuine dialogue, and if members of the profession were to say, all right, let's imagine what this business of law is all about, they would acknowledge they have a relatively small part of the business of law. Very important part, but a relatively small part. And Yes, it's true that law faculties should work with the professions to enable students who wish to practice law, which the vast majority do, to be able to do that. 
We're called legal studies programs. We're not called I'm a barrister program or I'm a solicitor program. Right? I'm, I welcome the professions into the faculty of law. I welcome that dialogue. Just don't tell me that you have a monopoly on truth. Thank you very much for your lecture, Professor McDonald. I wanted to ask what the role of research is in your vision of academic research, uh, academic virtue, and in particular, how much time should be spent on it, and what it, what types of things we should be researching. Because in my experience so far, there's definitely a tension between the kind of virtue you're talking about and the kind of environment we should be fostering, which I understand it sounds like it's all for the students, really. I mean, that's what the main task is, and with the type of research agenda that uh, contemporary university expects. Again, that's that's a that's pro probably a question where the answer could be slightly different uh, in in the UK than my own experience. So. Uh, Again, I will try to speak to my own experience, and if there's something there helpful, uh, you, you, you can take it away. One, one has to look at um, the, the incentive structures for uh, doing, uh, doing research. Um, and in Canada, there are a number, but let me just oversimplify and say of two broad types. One are incentives that accrue to the institution from professorial research. If you have a cohort that does, or, or, or academic research, publishes 100 articles a year, you get X number of points, ergo your faculty gets X more dollars. Those are types. The other types of incentives are personal. Why, why, do you, why do you do research? I have colleagues who um, believe that the one case comment they wrote in 1978 that happened to have been cited by the Supreme Court right, validates their career for the rest of their life because they've been cited by the Supreme Court and somebody else who may have published 20, 30, 40 articles and books that never get cited by the Supreme Court uh, is, is an inferior scholar. That's because of the incentive structure. There's incentive structure to write articles that the profession reads because that's where you'll get your consulting contracts and that's where your income will, will go up. If, if we were to say The ambition of uh, research uh, is not to be judged by its impact in certain, uh, not, not to be judged exclusively by its impact in certain circles. I think, I think the balance between uh, research and teaching would change because what one imagines a research career to be would more closely align 
with the approach to legal studies which I've described here because you would not feel the obligation to generate that type of uh, publication. stuff that the gentleman to my left has published. And I can think of stuff that uh, Hugh Collins has published that, that are not designed to be cited by the House of Lords. Right? Wonderful. Right? That's, that's that, what, so I, I'm not sure, am I, have I missed your, were you asking about time or were you asking about direction of, of legal research? I meant both. And as, as, as for time, um, no, nobody said the vocation is easy. Right? And what we, what we know about the calling of, of being a law teacher is you are never off the job. You are teaching when you're sitting on a faculty committee and students are on that committee, how you act is an incredibly important modeling exercise about how to act responsibly uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as a legal professional. When you are in the tavern or at the pub uh, with students, uh, you may think you're off the job, you're not off the job. It is, it is the nature of university life that you're, you're constantly on call. And in law, that carries a rather special uh, responsibility because many of your actions serve as models for others. But the benefit of that, never being off the job, is that you're always doing your research. Right? If you can't watch and think about what's going on in a committee in which you're participating as animating your own research as an instantiation of things that are important for you to do, You've got blinkers on. Right? It's, it's, it's the lessons of our everyday life and our everyday encounters that, that provide grist for our, for our research endeavor. So yeah, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy. That's, 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 that's the calling. That's what we're here for. Well, thank, thank you, first of all, for answering such a wide range of questions such a considered and such a passionate way as well, but most importantly of all, thanks for presenting such a detailed and thoughtful and provocative lecture. Um, you might say you're not off the job, but you sort of are now, we're going to stop now, <laughs> and some people are going to take for dinner, but the main thing is to say, first of all, thank you very much indeed.